0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I am your host, Natalie Pearson. February 2021 witnessed a military coup in Myanmar. Whether it was unexpected or entirely predictable is perhaps a matter of debate. But what is without a doubt different this time around is the way the population of Myanmar has responded with younger generations in particular mustering their considerable power over social media to call for change, in a bid to avoid the suffering of their parents' generation. Among those actors pressing for change are members of the diaspora, many of whom spent years in refugee camps and who continue to live proximate to Myanmar. Our guest on SIAC Stories today argues that the physical proximity of these diaspora communities is key to their empowerment, but has, until now, been relatively unexplored. To discuss these issues, I am joined by Dr. Susan Bankey, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Sydney. Her current research examines the ways in which refugee and migrant populations mobilise for change in their home countries, with a particular focus on refugees from Myanmar and Bhutan. She has recently completed a manuscript about the political mobilisation of Bhutanese refugees in Nepal. In the wake of the coup in Myanmar, she has been writing and speaking about the coup and its aftermath for a range of media outlets, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Conversation, ABC National Radio's Late Night Live, and ABC's The News Hour. Susan, welcome and thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Natalie. It's really terrific to be here. To
1: use a top trending hashtag, what's happening in Myanmar?
0: That is the question I think for those of us that have been watching Myanmar for a while, we call ourselves Myanmar watchers or Burma watchers, the last several months have been a whirlwind. As you noted in your introduction, it was a little bit unpredictable, the timing of this coup. Most of us were skeptical that the country was moving in the right direction, at least at the speed with which we might have hoped. But the, the suddenness of the coup, the way it played out, has been, rather sadly, what we have seen before in the country. Now, in the first days, what I want to say is there was a certain lightness, both in the commenting of it on Twitter and on Facebook and even in articles, and also among the activists themselves, there was a heady feeling a feeling that we can beat this. And while I believe that is still the case, that that feeling exists, that sense of hope has been drowned out by the increasing violence, the reaction from the military, who are also known as the Tatmadaw. The Tatmadaw's response to peaceful protests has come slowly. The crackdown was not immediate. For the first couple of weeks, the Tatmata actually exercised restraint. I mean, the kind of restraint that a government should exercise when people are peacefully protesting. We shouldn't applaud them for that. We should accept that. That's what should have happened. But over time, their reaction has become increasingly violent. There have been more than 700 deaths. There have been... Over 3,000 people put in prison. There are a lot more for whom there are arrest warrants out. And despite that, protests continue. Many of the protests that have occurred in previous years, what we see is after about a month, so in 1988, after about a month and a half, the crackdown came and protests ended. The same happened with the Saffron Revolution. After a couple of months, all went quiet. This continues. The protests continue now, so something is different. But whether that heady feeling that we are continuing to witness in the country, whether that will continue, it's frankly quite hard to know.
1: I think many people might have first been aware of the coup when they saw a video trending on Twitter of a woman doing an exercise workout to an uncannily titled song about the Indonesian military, I think it was. Um, and it did have a bit of humor to it, that video, when it was first doing the rounds, even though it was quite disturbing to look at.
0: That's right. I actually came up with the hashtag, which quite frustratingly didn't take off. I thought that was going to be the beginning of an illustrious Twitter career. I named it hashtag aerobiku. But I mean, the thing is that that's such an indication of the lightness I felt back then. I probably wouldn't make a joke like that today because some months on, I've been following this I've seen the deaths of young people the torture of well-known poets the silencing of people that really want to be peacefully protesting but have now started to be quiet because people have to feed their families and the fear the fear is now starting to overtake that sense of optimism and this is where and forgive me if I have jumped the gun this is where the proximity of activists actually makes a difference. Because in instances where the military has created such fear in the population, people are crossing proximate borders. No one can get on a plane right now. In fact, recently the military, the Tatmadaw, has put into place restrictions on how long it takes for people who have applied to leave the country. They've put restrictions in place, making it increasingly difficult to leave. So what's the way? If you are scared because you've been peacefully protesting, but you're worried that your, your face is now known to the military, you can go into hiding, and some have, and then some have been found out. Or you can try to get out of the country. You can cross the borders. But crossing the borders is something you can only do to proximate spaces, which is why we're seeing more activity in India and in Thailand and a little bit in Bangladesh. Right now, I have not yet seen very much in China. I suspect that there is some activity. That's not something that I've looked at.
1: So are these large movements of people?
0: No, they're not large, and we don't know whether they will grow or they will shrink. What we're seeing, for example... In India, which is on the border of a part of Myanmar called Chin State, is that the people that are crossing over the border have included quite a few of the military defectors. And the reason for which that location has been the place where defectors are going is actually not clear to me. It may be that they were from a uh, battalion, a portion of the army that's kind of increasingly unsatisfied or is really unhappy with the way they've been required to work um, and to fight against the Chin minority. But what we're seeing in India is there are military defectors, In Thailand, we're seeing many of the same ethnic Karen that have been fighting against the Tatmadaw since the inception of the state, since 1948, that same ethnic minority, and those civil society actors and insurgent groups and ethnic armed organizations who have continued to cross the border, they are now joined, as they were in 1988, by non-ethnic minorities. So Ethnic Burmans, those who have crossed the border because the border of Thailand has in the past been a rather forgiving border where they could stay safely. And what's happening now is that the military of Thailand has been less forgiving than they have been in the past. So, what we've seen, for example, is that reporters who Prior to 2011, when Myanmar went through some kind of supposed transformation, reporters that used to report from Thailand, who went back in, are now back in Thailand. They had an infrastructure. It had already really been set up. They had contacts. They knew people. But this time around, the Thai government has been more restrictive. There's journalists and activists from Myanmar that have actually been put in detention. And a couple of days ago, the Thai government said that they were considering returning them to Myanmar, which would be, in fact, a case of what's called reflement. It means returning people to danger in the country from which they've come. And that's one of the, the most set-in-stone international norms. Recently, the Thai government has backed down from saying we're going to return them. But to my knowledge, they remain in detention. And what this tells you is that those individuals who have counted on proximity in the past to be able to continue to collect information from inside to continue to be close to the border, to know what's happening, to share stories, to provide kinds of support, are now finding that that proximity is working in tandem with the problematic flip side. And that is precarity.
1: So in a way, their proximity is working against them, their physical proximity.
0: Well, no. What, what I said is the proximity is working for them. The precarity is working against them. Now, often they, those go hand in hand, but actually one of the points that I'm arguing in this manuscript that has not yet been published is that it not need be. We, we often tend to think that proximity to a place of conflict and precarity go in hand in hand, and empirically that is often the case. But it need not be. We may try to create arrangements where people that are in proximate locations, so those defectors in India, the journalists in Thailand, potentially human rights documentation. Workers in Bangladesh find themselves not precarious. There could be arrangements in the future, these do not exist right now, by the way, but there could be arrangements in the future that offer human rights defenders of this kind a way to mitigate their precarity so that proximity ends up simply being advantageous rather than having that dark side.
1: I want to ask you about the international community, not just how it's responded to the coup, but about how it tends to view these proximate refugees, these physically proximate diasporic communities, are they seen as a problem? Or does the international community recognize that they can be supported to mobilize for reform?
0: I think on the ground, international actors who have worked with these communities know quite well how much agency they have, how much intelligence they have, and their capabilities in doing things like research and documentation, trainings, analysis about what best supports, returning inside eventually. So it's not that on the ground humanitarian actors fail to see the agency and mobilization potential of refugees, but the entire structure, the way that we even understand diasporas feels different. Generally, when people say the word diaspora, they think of far away. They think of distance. Now, Diaspora also, of course, includes people that are nearby. It's just that that's not the way that we are set up to think about those actors. Likewise, when refugees flee across the border, what is often in the minds of those who work with and support those actors is the short term. It's an emergency situation. So the humanitarian actors that are tasked with trying to protect those populations are almost structurally expected to think of them as people in need of emergency assistance. So I don't want to demonize the individual that works for the International Rescue Committee or the staffer that works for the World Food Program. But structurally, we are set up to see the near diaspora, let's call them, or proximate activists, might be another way to call them, We're set up to see them as recipients of humanitarian aid.
1: And you are instead arguing that they should be and are an essential consideration in any ecosystem of exile politics.
0: That's exactly what I'm arguing. But I also want to be really fair to say not every refugee is an activist. In fact, the vast majority are not. The vast majority have fled across the border because they are terrified or because they are no longer able to feed their families and their families are dying of starvation. And some of them may become activated from that experience, some may not. So it's not that every single refugee needs to be considered a mobilizer or a potential mobilizer, but the truth is some are. And I will say that there are others who may not be mobilizers. They are people that I call activist affiliates who in some ways support activists because they are the ones that potentially provide information to the activists. In fact, they may not even be refugees. So a good example would be business people. I don't think there's too much business trade going back and forth across the border right now. And if it is, it's illicit. But people that go back and forth across the border that are completely clean, the Tatmadaw would see them as completely clean because they have no activist sort of lens they have no activist stain on them that would be a, the language of course of the Tatmadaw but those are people that can move information and goods back and forth across the border
1: well let me ask you about that because Myanmar has experienced extensive internet blackouts with Facebook and Twitter in the past 3 months since the coup how are these proximate activists getting their information other than through these informal uh, business networks that you've just mentioned
0: I'm so glad you just mentioned that, and I can't believe I didn't bring it up sooner. A lot of people would say, oh, Susan, proximity actually doesn't matter anymore because we've got the internet. And in the context of the internet, we don't need people nearby to actually be telling us what's happening inside because people can broadcast it from within. And actually, what this recent coup has shown us is that's simply not the case because we we live in a world in which... Governments currently have the potential to cut off information, to spread misinformation, and to heavily surveil their populations within their borders. So yes, there is still information coming out through Twitter, through incredibly courageous, courageous journalists that remain in the country. So there is still some information that's coming from within. But increasingly, people are trying to get that information out through borders. They are doing it through USB sticks or through crossing back and forth the way reporters have in the past, the way reporters from Myanmar did before the advent of the internet. So what this proves is that the power of proximity remains quite salient, even in an environment where we heretofore may have thought the internet has kind of solved that problem. It's important for us to realize that It is still the case that in order to get information from within a country to trade resources of other kinds as well, material help, borders and proximate spaces remain essential.
1: One thing we've only touched on very briefly, and which I'd just like to come back to before we wind up, is the international community's response. Are you able to comment on that? (sighs) Yes,
0: I'm able to comment and to say that we see that the international community is completely failing Myanmar right now. Again, there are individuals in the international community, the UN Special Envoy for Myanmar, Christian Bergener Schranner, the UN Special Rapporteur on Myanmar, Tom Andrews, are trying. The former representative Yang He Lee are all saying the right things. And yet, we have not seen that the United Nations is recognizing the UN ambassador. John Motun, who is the one who chillingly held up a three-finger salute, he went to the UN as a representative. And at his speech, he said, this is not a legitimate government. I mean, the UN should be recognizing this man as the legitimate representative. And that has not happened. The UN Security Council has failed to act. We, we know the reasons why. And yet what this shows is that the system is broken. And really heartbreakingly, the tweets from activists from both within Myanmar and the border are tweets that say we don't trust the international community to do anything for us.
1: And we've also seen within ASEAN disappointment within ASEAN countries because ASEAN has not recognised this as an illegitimate government as well.
0: I mean, that's right. We know that ASEAN has a policy of non-interference. So I think I was one of many Southeast Asia scholars that didn't have high hopes. Look, there was a letter published by five former representatives of AICHR, the ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, which is a body that most people know has no teeth, but former representatives of it did write a letter saying, "We, we believe more action needs to be taken. This is not a time for ASEAN to be silent. But that hasn't made a difference. Much like these individuals at the United Nations who have spoken against Myanmar, much like their statements have not made a difference. The possibility of of making a difference is quite high in the country. I mean, the Myanmar general, General Min Aung Hlaing, has said, we've been isolated before and we'll be isolated again. Your sanctions aren't gonna change our minds. And that is soberingly true. It looks like something more would be needed. And I do not believe that the international community has the appetite for um, military intervention or peacekeepers. But then the question is, what, what is the purpose of the United Nations I mean, we know the purpose is to keep international peace. Here we have an example where peace has not been kept. I'm delighted to see there's a lot of journalists from Myanmar that are writing about this. It's not just white scholars like me. And a brilliant article that was just published in The Diplomat makes the comment that the international community is failing in its own goals by not being able to respond more forcefully in a country that is clearly posing a threat to international peace and security
1: it's probably foolish to ask to end on a, a note of optimism but i would like to ask you if we're thinking about promoting reform in myanmar where should we sitting outside myanmar be focusing our efforts on applying pressure internally supporting international actors or should we be focusing on these proximate refugees that you've been talking about
0: I don't want to overblow the importance of proximate refugees. They're one piece of the puzzle. The action and the energy and the hope that is inside the country far exceeds that right now. And that, I think, is where the focus needs to be. One would imagine that those proximate populations are providing support for what's happening inside. But I love that you've asked me to try to end on a note of hope. What I will say is that we know that the government that was in power prior to the coup was not a perfect government. It was, it was under the NLD's watch. It was under the watch of Aung San Suu Kyi that thousands of Rohingya were killed. Tens of thousands of Rohingya women were raped, and hundreds of thousands of Rohingya had to flee to Bangladesh, where they remain today. And accounting for those violations, none of that government have really accounted well for those violations. So what we see from a younger, vibrant class of activists is not, we want a return to January, 2021. The call is, we want something completely new. We need a government that will well represent the ethnic minorities in the country. We want a government that will recognize the violations that have been done to the Rohingya. And we need to start a little bit afresh. I don't want to say everyone is saying that. There's also a lot that disagree with that, because there's just deep-seated mistrust in the country that I don't really have time to talk about now. But the truth is, there is the possibility potentially, for the creation of a new Myanmar. What it will take is not just support from proximate activists, but from many people in the international community. It will take funding, funding to the civil disobedience movement within the country. It will take attention, potentially trainings, support of every kind— to imagine a kind of a new Myanmar. But if I'm going to end on a note of hope, there has never been a time when that was more possible than in this moment of crisis.
1: Fantastic. Susan, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights and knowledge on Myanmar with us at SIAC Stories.
0: It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favorite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.